Turn to Philippians chapter 3 in your Bibles. If you have a Bible with you, there may be one in the pew in front of you, and we invite you to uh, open the Bible with us. We'll have some of the scriptures we're going to talk about on the screen here, uh, but others we're going to read uh, from the text. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, the apostle says, Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not my count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. What's the passion of your life? You have a passion? I think probably all of us do in some regards, and maybe to some different degree. Is there something that you want to accomplish more than anything else? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The child of God has a passion for righteousness, has a desire to be pleasing to God. And that is presented in the scriptures not only as something that God desires, but something that is a natural result of an ongoing relationship with God. A passion to continue to be pleasing to Him and to have a relationship with God throughout one's life. The Apostle Paul was a man, I believe, who had a God-given passion. What was at one time his passion became that which he easily discarded. And that which he so disdained became the very center of his life. The Lord personally appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. Talked about that in Acts chapter 9. And Jesus commissioned him to be his ambassador. To go into all the world and speak for him. Ananias told him, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Acts chapter 22, verse 14 and 15. So when Ananias came to Saul of Tarsus and talked to him about what God had in store, he gave him a mission. And then Jesus promised Paul in Acts chapter 26, after he had gone through a great deal of ordeal to establish himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so God promised Paul as he began, as he transferred from being Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle, and as he began to spread the gospel throughout the world, I'm not going to leave you. I'll be with you wherever you go, and I will deliver you from the hands of those who want to kill you, and ultimately you will fulfill my mission. And so Paul went about, planted churches throughout Asia Minor, Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia. He personally preached the gospel to kings and to magistrates, and to high officials, even Caesar's household. At least that's the implication from Philippians. Paul may have been responsible, directly or indirectly, for more conversions than anybody else in the world, and maybe, certainly, even to this time. During his preaching and teaching, Paul met constant opposition. He was always faced with the threat of not only being opposed doctrinally, but as well being harmed personally. 
as a result, as we've been studying along, we recognize Paul suffered unimaginable pain. Yet one thing that becomes clear as we look at the historical record of the apostle is that that pain and that suffering, that persecution, that opposition, never turns Paul away from his passion. It never deterred him from the course. It never caused him to give up on the mission. Yet, we look at, and when we look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11, what we've looked at last month, we recognize that when Paul looked back on his life, he never regretted the decision. He never said, well, if I'd taken this, this might have happened. Rather, he said, I counted everything that I had gained up until the point that I knew Jesus as garbage to be tossed out, that I might gain Christ, that I might know him, that I might fellowship in his sufferings, and in the end, that I might attain to the resurrection. Paul had received an enormous and compelling task to save others through the preaching of the gospel, to spread the kingdom of God to places that had never been before. And Paul many times spoke about that passion, about that calling, about that commission. Yet what we meet here in Philippians chapter 3 in the verses we just read is not so much a reflection on Paul's mission as an apostle, his passion and desire to fulfill and accomplish what God had given him to do as his ambassador. But rather what we read here, Paul speaking about, is much more of a personal nature. But Paul had a passion and desire to personally attain to the resurrection from the dead. That he wanted to make it all the way. That what he wanted out of life was to get a full, complete relationship with Jesus Christ. He wanted to press on to the goal that he describes here as the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's your goal. To gain the prize and the call of the upward call of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that Paul was a sports fan. And I say that because there are so many times when he utilizes a metaphor of of an athletic competition to describe the life of the Christian. Paul's favorite athletic metaphor was running a race. You get on the starting line, the gun goes off, and you run. How far do you run? How fast do you run? Well, see, that depends on the type of race it is, and it depends upon your passion. But certainly the objective here is to finish the race. The objective is to win the race. The objective is to run so as to be the winner and in the end get the prize. Because of those inherent qualities of running a foot race, they made a very apt metaphor of what it means to be a child of God, to run the race. He declared to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, but none of these things move me, talking about the persecutions he'd undergone, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so Paul told the Ephesians, I'm running the race, and none of the things that have come in my way are going to keep me from finishing the race. He reminded the Corinthians who no doubt were very familiar with the Isthmus games that were, that were held in their vicinity. He said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. He goes on to say, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim or not without purpose. 
And so Paul's life was not a haphazard choosing things as you go, shooting from the hip, I'll make my decision when I get there. Paul had a goal in mind. He had an aspiration. He was running to a finish line. He was pressing on to a goal. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul expressed his fear that he might be running or had run in vain because there are those who taught who were not going to finish the course. And then in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7, he lamented over those same brethren and says, you were running well, but who hindered you from the truth? He saw that there were others who'd begun to run the race who might not make it to the end, that they needed to continue to endure to the end. And then that, there's those famous words at the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. When Paul looked back, he realized that from the time that he met Jesus on that road, there was a single passion to his life. And that as he closed the words of the scriptures, the inspired word that God had given him to give, he could look back on that and say, I have finished the race. It's a metaphor, of course, of the race, running the race. That's the context of the theme of Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16 that we're going to look at, the Lord willing, through the month of July. Passage reveals that Paul had a passionate concern for the truth, for the objective message of God. And that he had personally was aspiring to ultimately reach his goal to press on to his prize. But had he gotten there? Had he arrived? You know, I'm convinced that probably the most notorious question of all time, and you've heard it before, is are we there yet? <laughs> Usually said from the backseat of a car by an impatient child who wants so much to get to the destination but is not much enjoying the journey. Are we there yet? When the apostle received that question into his own heart, his answer was, no. He says, I have not yet attained. I have not yet been perfected. How long have you been a Christian? Do you have a conscious vision of your own imperfection? Paul had been a Christian for maybe 25 years when he wrote this statement. He'd suffered a lot. He'd accomplished a lot. Yet when you look back on his life, he says, we're not there yet. We have not yet arrived. In the text, Paul utilizes two Greek verbs to express this idea. And I think in the words themselves, there is some substance. He uses the word attained. We have not yet attained in the King James Version, New King James Version. Other translations say obtained. The word is labano, which means to take hold of or to grasp. It has the sense here to enter into a close relationship, receive or make one's own, to apprehend, and that's the way it's translated later on, or to comprehend. It's significant to note that when Paul uses this verb, it's in the aorist tense in the original language, which means it points to a single past moment of time that he had not yet, at a single moment of time, obtained or attained that which he desired to attain. Meyer says, obtained here is meant in the sense of ideal anticipation in which the individual is as sure and certain of the future attainment of the prize as if it were already an accomplished fact. And that's a pretty good description of what the aspect of obtained or apprehended means here when he says, I've not yet gotten that. 
it seems you, you, I think that Paul is denying that which many in religion certainly on a constant basis entertain. Many people hold the view that a believer is as sure and certain of the future attainment of the prize as if it was an accomplished fact in the very moment they did believe that once they're saved they can never be lost and once they have it, it is always there. And yet, Paul says, no, I have not yet obtained that. Paul never entertained a once saved, always concept of salvation, but rather that God would provide salvation as a result of his faithfulness. But it seems contextually that Paul's saying more than the obvious, that he not yet attained to the resurrection. If we look back at the use of this verb, we recognize that's the last time he used it when he talked about attaining to the resurrection of the dead. It's obvious Paul had not attained to the resurrection of the dead when he speaks here, but it seems that he's saying more than that, that he's saying that his unattained goal include all of the things that he had desired to acquire and looked forward to acquiring that he just talked about. In verse 8, he said to gain Christ. In verse 9, he said to be found in him. In verse 10, he said that I might know him or attain to the resurrection of the dead. That all of these things laid before Paul as a continually as a continual goal to be achieved or that which ultimately would at one time be consummated in the future. So there's a sense in which all of these goals had not yet been realized in their fullest extent. Linsky says Paul had been a Christian for years, yet at no point during those years, not even in the recent past, could he say, I am done. Are you done? No, you're not done. Why is that so? Because God is continuing to work on you. And he continues to have a work for you. And so Paul also expresses this aspect in saying that I'm not already perfected. And he uses a word there that's familiar to us from the New Testament. It's the word teleo, which means to be perfect or to be complete. And he says, I've not yet been brought to an end, so to speak. I've not yet accomplished my goal. Paul realizes that he's still a work in progress when it comes to what God is doing. And although he suffered a lot, and certainly there would be no more individual who would be considered to be more spiritual among the Philippians than the Apostle Paul who writes them at this time, he is telling them, I'm not yet perfect. So God was still pruning Paul, still shaping him, still disciplining him through his word, still completing the process. Because that's an ongoing process. There are some in the Wesleyan tradition who claim that they've reached sinless perfection, but the Bible never teaches that. It never teaches the ability of an individual to reach sinless perfection while they live in the flesh on this earth. So we continue in this struggle. And as we look at our lives, we recognize, even though we may be at retirement age, going to go down to the sunny south and take it easy, but from a spiritual perspective, there's still race to run. And we are still striving to attain Earlier, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He said when he first began writing to these folks here that God's working in you, and he's going to continue working in you until the very end, and I'm praying that he will accomplish that which he desires. Process of salvation and sanctification that applies to us as well. Sometimes we call it spiritual growth. Sanctification, the aspect of making us more like Christ as the time goes on. We need it in the context of this to understand our own imperfection and have a consciousness of our own imperfection and realize that God calls us to sinlessness as an ideal participation in the very image and life of Jesus Christ. First John chapter 1 and verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. So there's two things I can never say about sin. I can never say I've never sinned. I make God a liar. The truth is not in me because certainly God has testified that I am a sinner and I've fallen short of the mark. Nor can I say, you see, in this respect, that I have no sin now. But there's nothing yet to be done. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I must confess my sin because God has made provision for its cleansing. So Paul's not arrived. He's not attained. He's not yet made perfect. So what his response to that is, I press on. Paul was totally dependent on God for every spiritual blessing. Whether times were good or bad, whether he was in prison, out of prison, whether he was in this city or that city. Everything would be directed, orchestrated, and have its source in God. And he describes the Christian life then as a laboring and a struggling. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 29, to this on I also labor, striving according to his working, which works mightily in me. So Paul says, I'm laboring and striving, and God is working within me. That synergy between my work and God's work, you see, should not be overlooked in Scripture. It's at the very basis of what sanctification and salvation is about. That God is working in me. I don't save myself. I'm saved by the grace of God. And yet He calls on me to be obedient and to be active in my own salvation. To labor and to struggle. Ultimately to be faithful to His Word. And so when Paul uses the term press on, when he says I press on, he's using a word that reflects this aspect of his personal responsibility to struggle or to labor in the process of his own salvation. The Greek word is dioko, which means to pursue or to chase. Interestingly, the connotation of the word it was used in the Greek language to describe a hunter in search of its prey. So as the lion would go after the antelope, the lion would pursue or chase after Attempt to grab or to grasp hold of its prey. Paul was chasing the goal. He was pursuing the goal. Fascinating thing about the use of this particular term in the context is that Paul uses the same word back in verse 6 when he talked about the fact that he was zealous persecuting the church. You remember Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul the Apostle? He was pursuing. Well, what was he pursuing? He was pursuing Christians to kill them. And the very same use of the, the, the use of the same word describes this aspect of his zealousness to go about and bring about the end of Christianity. But now things have changed. Now Jesus has met him on the road. His passion has changed. And now he's continually to pursue, but now he's pursuing something else. He's pursuing the prize that comes by the upward call of God. What God started on the Damascus Road, Paul is going to pursue it till its very end. He will not give up on it. Plummer adds that the term itself requires strenuous effort that must be applied. Paul's not sitting back resting on his oars because he's been saved, because he has received Jesus Christ, or even because he's an apostle. He's pressing on. Why is he pressing? Why is he laboring? In the text he says that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Paul was pursuing his goal in order to lay hold on something. And again, the word aspect there of lay hold is the same word that he used before when he talked about obtaining or attaining. It means to grasp onto something, at least to say it from the same root word. It's an intensified form of the word that means to grab hold of something and hold it tightly. It even means to capture it. So the lion chases after the antelope, pursuing it, and in the end, he lunges and he captures his prey. 
That's a vivid image. Paul says, I'm pursuing that I might capture. I'm pursuing that I might grab hold of the prize that's before me. Well, what is it that Paul is pursuing? What did he desire to capture? In the text he says, that for which Jesus Christ also laid hold of me. And he uses the same word there, the aspect you see of lambano or catalambano, which means to grasp or to hold on to something. But he says, Christ did that to me. The NIV says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul could remember that when Christ took hold of him. He could remember when God Jesus captured him. And he understands why Jesus captured him and what that was all about and what the purpose was behind that. And he says, I'm pressing on that I might capture the prize that's the same prize for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Now what that tells me is, you see, when God appeared to Jesus on the road to Damascus, it wasn't a one moment in time finished and we're done. That God was capturing Paul for the very purpose of pursuing ultimately Paul's salvation to make him a saint so that he might be ultimately attained to the resurrection. And there was purpose in Paul's conversion because he's going to bring about the conversion of others. Paul was going to speak the word of Christ, make this, uh, this very ambassadorship his passion. So Paul, Jesus took hold of Saul of Tarsus to save him. But more than that, and ultimately in connection with that, he took hold of Saul of Tarsus to change him. And that too was an ongoing process. The, Paul, the apostle stated in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become a conformed to the image of his Son, so that, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul was captured by Jesus to be like Jesus. Why were you captured? Have you been Captured by Jesus. Are you a Christian? Has the word of God caught you up? And you through your passion to serve him. Obeyed him. Repented of your sin. Been baptized in the body of Christ. And now you walk a new life. And ultimately. Are you striving for that same purpose. To press on to the goal today. So the Lord Jesus has laid hold of us. With purpose. And Paul's passion to pursue what God had begun in him. He describes here as one thing. One thing I do. That's an interesting phrase. You know, focus is important in athletics. If, a, if an opponent can distract, if a, if a team can distract its opponents from ultimate goal, they can sometimes overcome even a more talented team if they can get them to lose focus. In nearly every athletic competition and every athletic endeavor, we understand the importance of that. I think about focus, I think about photography. I like to take pictures, and the aspect of focus is a big part of that. In fact, it's interesting that in photography there's a terminology that's used, it's called depth of field. With the iPhones and stuff, I don't think people much think about that anymore. They just put their camera up and take a picture, and that's it. And does a pretty good job. But back in the day when you were using film and, you, and trying to take pictures and setting f-stops and exposures, there was a terminology called depth of field, which meant the distance at which the camera lens could keep a, a, an object in focus. So that you take a picture and maybe just that what's in front of you is in focus and everything else is blurry. Or you take a picture and everything seems to be in focus all the way out. That was depth of field. And in terms of used to be able to set, to set that, the aspect of the, the wider open your aperture was, the more light you let into the camera, then the less depth of field that you got. 
If you shut down the light and the aperture, it would increase the depth of field. So if you're going to take a picture of something that's close and far away, it would keep it in focus. And those were called f-stops. So if you have a higher f-stop, then that you had a longer depth of field. You had a shorter depth, a, a smaller f-stop. You had, you see, a shorter depth of field. Got all that? I say that to say this. Paul kept his f-stop at one. He opened up the light and closed out the depth of field so that what he was looking at, only what he was looking at in the very center of his lens, closest to him, that was in focus. Everything else was blurry. There's a spiritual focus to that. Most people go along with their f-stop pretty high. They want to keep everything in focus. They want to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They want to include everything. They want somehow to be Christianity to be sort of a part of their life while they try to endeavor to do a lot of other stuff. But Paul wanted to keep one thing in focus. James described this high f-stop person as double-minded, unstable in all their ways. James chapter 1 and verse 8. You see a lot of Christians that are like that today. They try to keep everything in focus rather than being single-focused. Paul says, one thing I do. How is this focus accomplished by Paul? Three elements involved. One, he says, forgetting those things which are behind. Runner who looks back seldom wins. He's looking back and thinking about who's chasing him or where he's been before. He's not going to be focused on what's ahead. And a runner's performance at this particular point in the race or how he was doing back then makes little difference as to what he's going to do when he gets in the future. A fellow might start out really strong, sprinting and thinking about, boy, I was really passing the crowd back there. But by the time he gets to the finish line, he's going to be last. So the aspect here of not looking back is an important element of single-focused discipleship. Paul made a break with the past. We just studied about where he says, I counted all at loss. His religious achievements, his virtuous deeds, his great successes and ministries, all the things that he'd done before, as well as those things that were those things that were negative, his sins, his missed opportunities, the disasters, the mistakes he'd made in life, all were to be forgotten. And so it is with us. We have a past before us, behind us, that may be filled with great spiritual victories, a time when we were doing things for God. We may be, our past may be filled with great sins and disasters when we were far away from God. But now here we are, pressing on towards the goal, and all of those things must be forgotten or put behind us. Because there is a goal in front of us. There are a lot of folks, I think, that are spiritually crippled. Because they hold grudges. They're paralyzed by bitterness and sins, the tragedies of the past. Or they're deceived by thinking that because they were faithful in the past, that all that's okay and it doesn't matter about today. Satan doesn't care which one you focus on. Just so you're looking back. That's all that matters to him. Paul says, I'm not looking back. I'm reaching forward to those things that are ahead. Reaching forward translates from a compound verb which means to stretch out. It describes the stretching of a muscle to its very limit. And pictures a runner as he's coming to this finish line that he reaches over with every effort and stretches himself out so that he can touch the finish line. And I think about that word sometimes when I think about my spiritual life, the activities of my spiritual life. 
Sometimes we get in a routine and we know the things that we're responsible for doing and we know that what this is what we're going to do this week and that week and we continue on doing these things. And so, so to speak, we attend services and we say our prayers and we do this and we do that. And I think about how much of that is a strain. Where is the straining activity? Where is the truly reaching out for the prize that's for us? Why, where am I doing something that I've never done before or that I've done very b- badly before or weakly before that now I'm going to strive to do it more? Because sometimes that's not there. And the characterization of my, state, of, of my spiritual life is just a going with the flow. That I'm in a job, but there's no race. So Paul is pressing on, reaching forward to those things that are ahead. Can you think about what else Paul thought he might have to do to serve Christ? What else was on the agenda that Paul would have to strain for? Well, he's writing this from a Philippian jail, or from a Roman jail. He's writing this from a Roman jail, at least that's what we deduce from this, is that he's writing this late in his life. And there might have been a lot of folks, even in Philippi, who he's writing to, who thought, well, the apostle had a good run, but he's done. And Paul's words may have shocked them. Oh, I'm an old guy in the, meta, about, in the bottom of a dungeon, but I'm pressing on. I'm reaching on. I'm straining my muscles so that I might attain to the prize. And so Paul says he was pressing on. I press toward the goal. And there's that word again, diokos, which means strenuous effort. And some suggest that the idea here is that he's bearing down at the finish line. You see runners, when they run a race, they come and they round that corner, and then there's the finish line. Maybe there's a couple of guys next to them or behind them or whatever, and they realize this: these last 50 yards, this is it. This is it. i got to do it now, or I'm never going to win the race. I want to suggest that Paul thought that somewhere along the line he had no confidence in salvation, that he had to do something special to get into heaven. Paul certainly believed in the security that came with the blood of Jesus Christ and understood that God had made him a promise that he was going to fulfill. But let's not overlook the image here as Paul relates to us this aspect of how a person approaches the end of their life or the end of the race itself, that they press on toward the goal, that they bear down to the finish line. They will not allow anything to distract them. They will persevere all the way to the end. Are you persevering to the end? Or are you retired? Paul says, I press toward the end to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need to see the goal clearly. The prize is given as a reward for running the race. You can't get away from that image. And when he talks about the prize of the upward call of God, he's talking about a reward that comes as a result of effort. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do you not know that those who run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way to obtain it. Don't lose sight of the goal. But notice that the prize here is called the prize of the upward call of God. The prize is associated with the call of God. And what that tells me is that what, what lies ahead of me is ultimately rooted in what lies in the past. That God has called me through the gospel of Jesus Christ to be his child. He opened up the way to salvation. When I became cognizant of the Jesus that died for me on the cross and resurrected from the dead. And when you and I responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and became Christians, we were answering a call. And Paul describes it here as the upward call of God. There's a prize to the upward call. Two thoughts. 
One is that it's a call that comes from heaven. This is not a call from the earth. This is not a call of your own ambition. This is not the aspiration that you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or you want to go to school or you want to have a flat life. This particular call comes from God Himself in the Gospel. So it's an upward call. We dare not miss it. Nor understand that it is higher quality than any other call that we will ever receive. But probably more to the context. Paul calls it an upward call because it is a call to heaven. That God is calling us to somewhere. And it's not this world. It's not the attainment of this world. It's not the things that this world can offer. Paul's seen all of that and he said, I gave it all up. It's all garbage. I throw it on the trash can. There's nothing there. But God is calling me upward. And there's a prize to the upward call of God. Later on in the same chapter, Paul will say, our citizenship is in heaven. That we eagerly await to be there. That we must not lose sight of the goal. I believe there's a real dearth. There's a real shortage and loss among Christians of a spiritual consciousness of the prize of the upward call of God. That many people stay faithful to God from the standpoint of outward obedience. They may maintain their relationship with other Christians in an aspect, do what they do. Because being a Christian makes it easy here. makes it comfortable here. And ultimately makes them happy here. When God would call us beyond that, that Paul could not look at his life and the things that had transpired in the past years and where he was at that time in any say, anyway say, well, physically this has really worked out, hasn't it? It had not. The prize that Paul pressed onto was a prize of the upward call of God, a prize beyond the things of this world. He wrote the book of Colossians about the same time he wrote the book of Philippians. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul said this, Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. Put your sights on heaven. Now what he tells us also, in conclusion, is that the upward, the prize of the upward call of God is in Christ Jesus. There are even folks in religion who can conceive of heaven and have a perception from biblical truth. That this is where God is and this is where God wants us to be, but they are not in Christ. And so they desire the prize and they desire the goal and maybe would even stretch out for it. But they have no hope of it. Because Paul says that that prize is in Christ. And he also tells us that one would get into Christ by being baptized in the body of Christ. Don't you know that as many of you were baptized, were baptized into his death? That we might be resurrected through the spiritual resurrection to a new life. That you come into Christ by being someone who puts their trust and their confidence in everything that Christ has done on the cross. And giving up your own efforts to save yourself, you throw yourself on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and be obedient to His will. Will you turn away? Will you count as lost those things in the past and not look back? Turn away from the evil of your life so that you might press on towards the goal? Will you... Run the race. Maybe we can assist you even this morning if you're not a Christian. We call on you to do what the Bible describes everyone did to become a Christian in the book of Acts. 
They believed that Jesus Christ was their Savior. They repented of their sins and turned away in conscious effort to do what was right, set their sights on Jesus Christ, and they were baptized for the remission of their sins. Maybe we can help you do that. Let's stand and sing.